I would have kept chugging right along and saying yes and taking on things and trying to keep status quo if something big in life didn't kind of knock me off course a little bit. And I don't know if that is a me thing or if that's a common ADHD thing where it's kind of like something has to knock us off a little bit to realize maybe we've been over-functioning and doing all of that overachieving to justify our worth or our value. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Okay, before we get started, I would like to share with you this review from a listener called Baby 91 on the Apple Podcast platform. It's called Best Body Double Ever. As a woman with ADHD who was diagnosed during the pandemic, I resonate with so many of these stories. I played this podcast when I clean to motivate me and keep me going. These stories are inspiring and I've learned so much. Yay, thank you so much, Stanra Baby. I love picturing you cleaning along to these conversations. I'm so glad you find them inspiring and thank you for stopping and taking the time to leave me that review. As a woman with ADHD, I know just how much it takes to remember to stop and log into the app and look for the review section and then try to articulate what you're feeling and put it into words. So I truly appreciate the effort it takes. And it helps so much in getting this podcast noticed and found by other women who could really benefit from hearing these interviews as well. Okay, here we are at episode 88, in which I interview Candon Phillips. Candon is a licensed clinician and supervisor in South Carolina. She specializes in the diagnosing of ADHD and in educating others, especially other therapists, to recognize the traits of ADHD. Candon is the founder of Humanity Hive, an online platform and business focused on providing information to support those with ADHD. In addition to her fabulous Instagram account, she also now offers self-guided online classes on ADHD, including an overview and one that specializes in feelings. I'm giving this episode a trigger warning because we do talk about the recent death of her mother via suicide, as well as some of her thoughts and reactions. So if that is a difficult topic for you, you might want to skip this interview. Kendon and I also spoke about her own diagnosis journey and the pressures of perfectionism and pushing ourselves to the point of burnout. And we also spoke about the power of music for the neurodivergent brain. Now, before this gets going, full disclosure, this is actually my second interview with Candon. I am such a huge fan of hers. And during our first interview, I was so flustered and excited that I actually forgot to hit the record button. And the entire conversation was lost to the celestial sphere. I actually had to email her explaining what an idiot I was and apologize profusely. And she graciously agreed to sit down with me again to re-record another interview. And then I had a dental emergency and had to cancel that second interview. So when we finally sat down together, I was curious what the universe would throw at us again. And it did not disappoint. This time it was Candon's audio quality. So I apologize in advance. The recording sounds less than ideal. My wonderful podcast editor, Emily, has done her best to fix the sound quality for you because there was no way I was not going to air this conversation, but I just wanted to give you all a proper heads up all the same. All right, enjoy. 
we'll get started. I want to ask you the question I always start out with, which is as a therapist who is open about your own ADHD, when were you diagnosed and, and what was going on in your life that you kind of thought I really should look into this or started connecting the dots about ADHD? Yeah. And I think those are two very different points for me when it was like when I was diagnosed and then when I actually started figuring out what ADHD was. So I am the one that has the brother that meets all the markers. I mean, it was clear from the get-go. He was the hyper kid and that's what everyone thought ADHD was. So um, I did not get even a little bit recognized as ADHD until somewhere in college. And I can't even pinpoint it. And it was a very not formal conversation. It was almost like, just go see your brother's psychiatrist for a second. She's willing to let you sit in the chair. And I remember it being a very brief conversation. And she was just like, here, here's some medicine (laughs) that I probably took a little bit on and off. Didn't find it very helpful. Um, And then we're in 2022. So somewhere in the last three years, really took the dive into looking into ADHD symptoms because as a therapist, I was seeing stuff come up with kids that I was working with. that just wasn't aligning with diagnoses. And then once I did the deep dive, it was just like, here I am, here are my kids. This is a whole new beast that I did not even understand. And I've been doing it for a long time. (laughs) And then looking back over your whole childhood with this new lens. Oh, I mean, I just want to bang my head against the wall of like, why were my friends able to study and get it done in an hour? And I'm like all night long keeping these note cards afresh. And why do I take a test and immediately forget the information? And y'all can recall the whole year's worth of what we studied in every class for me is like brand new information. I mean, just the list goes on and on and on, which is cool to look back and see all that stuff, but very frustrating thinking that could have been a lot easier. Yeah. Oh, I know. Right. You know, it's, I I speak to so many women who did really well in school and, and so, you know, it's such, it's always a part of the conversation because I think there's also so many medical professionals who say you did well in school, so you can't possibly have ADHD. And then it, you know, the question is then like at what cost, right? Right. (laughs) Like I remember my first year of university, I did abysmally. I didn't, I was partying all the time. I didn't go to any of my classes. I got a, a full F and like, really it kind of, you know, I, I understood finally in that environment, what an F means and like how it really like destroys your transcript moving forward. So I was like, eh, I'm going to drop out. But then when I came back, I, I had to put everything I had, like all of my mental resources and emotional resources went into doing well in school. And I did well, I was on the Dean's list, but like, It's funny because now I always talk about myself like I was this terrible student and I kind of forgot about these periods of time when I was able to like really bring it all together to do well. And then I'm like, that's what all these other women were just doing (laughs) all All the time. time. (laughs) We were wearing ourselves out trying to meet the standards and we were meeting it, but a lot more effort than other people were having to do. And I don't know if that this experience was for you. The more I kind of learn about this dopamine pattern and like these, these high days and these low days, I'm even able to look back at like years of high dopamine and like working in a very stressful environment where I was pretty much kept at this level. And then having shifting out of that, um, a friend of mine actually was like, I think you're kind of detoxing from the, however many years you did really stressful work because you've like stepped down this year. And it feels like my unraveling has just peaked. It's like, I never thought about years of being kept at a level and then shifting when we make a shift in life. 
Yeah, right. I mean, that that is really interesting because I talk about like working in a newsroom, right? And how much I love being on deadline every night and like, you know, sitting at the edge of my seat, having to pee so badly, but like, you know, wanting to get everything done and, and the hyper focus and all of it. And then just leaving it all behind and starting fresh the next day. And I was like, now through this new lens, I've realized like what an amazing job it was for, you know, my interest driven brain and all of that. Right. And, and it was really difficult for me. I really crashed when I had a baby because it was suddenly I went back after my minuscule time off and I was sleep deprived and like, you know, and I've talked about this on the podcast too, like how I basically was told if I, you know, we were in this newsroom, so there's no, you know, there's no offices or anything. It's just this one big floor of all of our desks. And I was told if I wanted to pump, I had to ask the editor in chief to vacate his office so that I could pump in his office. Cause it was literally the only like closable door. Uh, <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. On yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> But it was like for the first time in my adult life, I had been riding that high for so many years of this career I loved. And suddenly I was bad at that career. And I was also bad at being a mom. It was almost like life burnout, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think you just put into words my whole experience with that too. Of Coming back after being a mom, I think it's the, the first triggering point where everything is kind of rattled off from there. But I've come back with a brain that doesn't make sense, with a functioning that doesn't make sense. I'm no longer meeting the level of performance that I was before, which probably wasn't very healthy in the first place, let's be real. But it's rattling because your whole self kind of functioning. And for me, my self-worth became in question because I don't know who this person is anymore that's not able to rise to the occasion and take it all on, despite you know how exhausted I am in the process. <laughs> Right. And I think that's a level of grief that we don't talk about a lot. I, I deal with it with clients who are older, who've like gone through menopause and their life shifted tremendously through menopause and that grief of like not being able to do the things that we used to be able to do. And I think this is probably endemic of aging in general, but like I used to be an avid reader. Like I remember spending, you know, hours and hours curled up in a chair reading books and I just can't do that anymore. And so there's like a part of me that fought that and I had the pile of books and I was like, I'm going to get to them. I know I am. And then I had to let that go and just be like, you know what? I listen to books now. Yeah. It's just is what it is. And I, I had to let that go. But I think, you know, and anything, you know, grieving your past body and, you know, grieve all those things that come with aging. There is that sort of grief of like, I used to be good at technology. And now I look at my phone and I'm like, help. Yeah. Yes. That realization is like, oh, I, I shifted into that side of age where I don't know what they're talking about on technology. I don't know how to update the phone properly. I don't know what this thing's prompting me to do. The amount of Google searches on even how to run a simple Instagram page is mortifying. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. So there's like that other level of not only the life that you could have lived had you sort of had this perspective, but also just kind of realizing how we are have such a hard time with transitions. It makes sense that I have a hard time, like I need a pep talk, take a shower. So no wonder it's really hard to like go through a huge hormonal shift in life. Or <laughs> Yes. And I don't know about you, but now that I've seen what a big shift that was becoming a mom and the hormonal shift in that, I can look forward to menopause and I'm a little terrified. I'm like, I mean, I feel like I got knocked down a little bit from becoming a mom. What's the next level <laughs> that I'm about to hit? Yeah, right. Yeah. I'm sort of half 
terrified because I'm also sort of like my memory is already shot. I don't know what's going to happen when I actually like I'm, I'm in that like I'm turning 48 this year. So I'm in that like giant decade long perimenopause question mark where I'm like, is this normal? Is this not? I don't know. Um, but yeah, I'm also sort of like, it's already so bad. How much worse can it get? But then I also kind of feel like, well, maybe this is good because I'm developing a grace with myself that will come in handy. <laughs> yes. That grace. I was just thinking about it this morning. Either I'm one of those people or it's part of ADHD where I have to be forced into a very humble position for me to give myself grace. Since my mom died, I don't think I would have ever stepped down as much as I needed to, to like take care of myself and my family. Even though that was always kind of a long-term plan that I would probably shift down as like a part-time thing, I would have kept chugging right along and saying yes and taking on things and trying to keep status quo if something big in life didn't kind of knock me off course a little bit. And I don't know if that is a me thing or if that's a common ADHD thing where it's kind of like something has to knock us off a little bit to realize maybe we've been overfunctioning and doing all of that overachieving to justify our worth or our value? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's been really difficult for me to parse because I was diagnosed at the beginning of the pandemic. So like, I always try to figure out like the pandemic brought so many boundaries in our lives. Like, they really forced us, brought out the introvert in so many of us. And now, right, like, and now we've had to kind of go back and there's so many relationships that I had before the pandemic that I just don't have anymore or certainly aren't as strong or just feel odd and awkward and stilted in a way that I can't figure out and I can't really uh, uncover. And, and so I think it was like this huge shift that in terms of boundaries um, that we were just kind of chugging along and going at full steam and not really thinking about things. And now we've been forced to be really conscious about a lot of things that we're willing to accept. And, and a lot of us just aren't willing to accept that anymore. And so that's why it's like, you've got everybody's quitting their jobs. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. And just being sort of feeling like, I don't know if it's, if it's ADHD and if it's the diagnosis that has shifted in me, a sense of like self-esteem that I'm now not willing to be treated a certain way. And I'm just not willing to like put myself in positions that I know will exhaust me, you know? So I'm like, it, like the answer is almost always, like you said, to step back and pull back <laughs> and minimize, right? I'm like, where can I minimize right now? Yes. Yeah. And I think that's hard for those around us who don't understand too, because they were used to us functioning at a certain level or always being the ones to probably say, yes, I'll take it on. And all of a sudden we're kind of doing this pullback thing that I think is confusing. It can be a difficult part of relationships. Yeah, especially with RSD and rejection sensitive dysphoria and sort of always feeling like putting yourself first always feels like it's at the expense of other your relationships with other people, right? And so you carry with you that shame of like, if I look out for my own mental health, it's going to make things awkward for these people who are draining me. Yes, yes. And I will preach that to my supervisees, to my people, to my colleagues all day long. It's okay to make a decision that is good for you and leaves others feeling disappointed or, you know, in a different difficult position, you're allowed to do that. But then when it comes time for me to do it, the RSD just swims. It's hard. It's hard to do that. It is, especially with, I, I, you know, I have a very complicated relationship with my father and it's the same idea of like, 
at what cost, you know, like if I sort of put my feelings last and I just, I'm like, Oh, just appease this old man and, and do what he wants. It's the, it, it feels so hard for me to every decision feels hard. Right. I'm like, if I respond and, and acquiesce, it feels terrible. If I ignore and reject, it feels terrible. Like it just always feels like the no decision feels right. And I'm (laughs) like, I'm always sort of like, what feels the least wrong in this moment? And then I'll deal with the next moment when it comes. Right. Yeah. I can, I can connect with that. Boundaries are a lot easier when I don't have to actively enforce them and maybe that's not even a boundary if I don't have to actively enforce it but I had a very complicated relationship with my mother before she died and some of that time was me having to step away for several years and really kind of estranged myself at the advice of numerous therapists I finally decided to listen and that was almost easier for me I mean I got I needed to heal I needed to work through a lot of stuff but I didn't have to put all of this energy into enforcing a boundary that someone was constantly pushing. And then when we did kind of reunite a little bit, I had to hold up boundaries again. And I was like preemptively exhausted and anxious because I was like, man, I didn't have to think about that for a little bit. I just got to exist. And the boundaries are always, they're tough when we're naturally people pleasers, whether that's because of family dynamics or ADHD tendencies. Yeah. I know. And you just made me think about how easy it is for me to be an open book with people I've never met before, but I feel instantly connected to. And yet at the same time, family, I'm just like, nope. I'm like walls everywhere. Everywhere. (laughs) At this point, I'm not always sure if the wall should be there, but I'm just used to having it there. So it is. (laughs) Right. And there's so many people I've met in my life who who would describe me as being very quiet and very guarded. And I'm like, no, that's just means I don't like you. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. And it's self-preservation there. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. I'd like to take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I am a big proponent of therapy. Therapy provides me the best opportunity for verbal processing, something that is so important for my kind of brain and my sense of self. What I love about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy that's done securely online from the comfort of your home. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And it's available for clients worldwide. So you get access to a broad range of expertise that might not be available to you locally. It also tends to be more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash women ADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash women ADHD. And there's a link in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids 6 through 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their Go Henry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. 
set your kids up for success, and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. Okay, so let's talk about grief. And I mean, you faced your grief with your mom when your mom passed away. And I mean, we can say she she took her own life, right? Yeah. And I mean, you spoke about it in such a public way. You brought that on. And I really commend you because it's tremendously uncomfortable to to be in and also to watch, right? And and I think one of the things my mother passed away five years ago. And I think one thing that struck me we had a complicated relationship too, but I just, I was like, it was so lonely. Grief is so lonely. And I remember thinking like, it's something we all go through. It's a universal experience to lose somebody who is close to you. Why does it feel like nobody understands what you are going through? And every, every interaction also, like I said before, like every interaction feels wrong and unsatisfying. And I just really wanted to thank you for like going through that in, in such a public, but also uncomfortable way, because I think we all, like I learned, certainly learned a lot about kind of grief and, and how much grief comes with that, like self-isolation and the shame. And it really doesn't need to. Yeah. Grief is a beast. I don't know, ever wrap my brain around it. Definitely. I don't think ever truly experienced until this. I think this was the first loss that really hit me emotionally. Um, to say I haven't cared about other people that have passed, but this one, this one hit me. It's really interesting. I never intended to process it publicly or to not process it publicly. Um, and I think in a very ADHD fashion, when something hit me and my brain kind of paired it with a song or paired it with something, I just did it. Uh, it's my own way of processing. And I think I'm finding that my page is a place where I can do a lot of creative things without even realizing that's what I'm doing. But the amount of comments that I had, especially on that post where I'm silently screaming, you know, comments or messages of like, I've been on the verge, but seeing what it would actually do to my children, seeing like what it is that's happening with you takes that off the table for me. Or I just never considered putting that kind of stuff out there would be helpful for someone who was struggling. Um, with ideas of suicide but that was a really interesting thing to see it's bizarre I would love to say that I put all this thought and intentionality between, between me putting this stuff out there but it really was just me kind of grieving in the best way I knew how and going there are people that probably connect with it there may be a lot of trolls that tell me what are you doing that's too public it's weird yeah it is <laughs> it just is. I feel that way sometimes about this podcast I never know what to say when people thank me for making the podcast because I'm like it's so selfish to be like it's really I don't literally I don't go into any conversation being like this is going to help people like I never wanted to you know I never started a podcast that was like here's everything you're going to learn about blah 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 um and and so like the intention is not there for me to like worry about whether I'm serving others like for me it's just so fun and so you know I, it's purely selfish and so I'm always sort of like when people are like thank you for having this thank you for doing this I'm like you're welcome like, <laughs> and so I guess that is sort of the nice side about diving headfirst right into I wouldn't I don't want to call it impulsivity but it's almost like there's not we don't have the patience to really think about what we're 
doing in a way that I really appreciate. Like I remember talking to a friend of mine who was house hunting and she was talking about how many houses she and her husband went to. They went to like 18 houses and they had a pros and cons list. And I was like, that would never work for me. I was like, my husband and I, thankfully he was the same. We like went to the first house and we were like, I like the vibe here. Let's, we'll take it. (laughs) Yes. That's so funny that you talked about house hunting in that way. My husband and I have been that way too. Like sometimes we aren't even looking for a house and we were like playing around online and found one and just walked up on it. We're like, Oh yeah, I think we're going to move. We're going to do this. (laughs) I know. Right. And I had so many instances too, where I was like, I, I moved into an apartment and then only after I moved in did I realize that there were like no three-pronged outlets anywhere. And I was like, oh crap, yeah, I should have looked into that. Oh that <laughs> detail. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's that kind of like just dive head first. What it's not impulsivity. What's the word? Is compulsivity? I don't know. Failure to plan. Failure to plan. <laughs> Living in the now. I mean, we live in the now. So I will record like four reels in a day with the plan to like hold them and like parse them out. And by midnight that night, they've all been posted because the ideas hit me, the motivations hit me, the energies hit me, and we're going to act on it now. Yeah. Yeah, Right. That was one of your reels that really blew my mind when, you know, you're talking, you're exploring the theme of big feelings, right. And how you had a reel where you said, you know, remember that current moments don't always represent all moments. And that was the first time I really associated timelineness, right? Because yeah. that's really what it is that different that, you know, we have a now and a not now mentality when it comes to time and how like time blindness was, was intrinsically linked to our emotions and emotional dysregulation and how, and I see it in my kids all the time now, like my son who just goes from zero to 150% overwhelmed immediately because you, we see everything. We see all the outcomes all at once. And so we, you know, our cup overflows and how it never occurred to me that that is really kind of related to time blindness. (laughs) I know it was, wild and that kind of clicked in my brain I was like oh this urgency this agitation this low frustration tolerance this quick to a feeling comes from everything either being felt now and overwhelming me in that moment or my brain going well this is how it's always been you've always felt this way you've always struggled with this or you will always you know xyz that can be really overwhelming (laughs) right and yeah especially with like um you know fights with my husband right where it's like you know, you go from those, like something really tiny becomes something enormous because it's, you see how it relates to all of these other things, you know, and and there's that it spirals so quickly because you're sort of like, I know how this is going to end. I know how this conversation is going to go and it's going to be, you know, and so you've already written the whole conversation before it even began. Right. Fortunately, it's finest. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But I think we, I think we have a tendency to do that in relationships sometimes, which is like, I don't, I already had this conversation by myself. I didn't need you. (laughs) Probably a hundred times by myself. Let's be real. Over and over and over and over. Yeah. I'll catch myself. My husband's great about it. I'll, I'll start using the always words. You know, I always kind of, we always sort of, we never really, and he's like, ah. I don't think that's a fair thing to say. Like literally three days ago, we did this, which contradicts what you're saying. I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. This is just, this is just a moment. It's like, yeah, Camden, it's just a moment. Let's not make it about everything. 
Okay, you're right. You're right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is a great kind of flag to remember in terms of like, am I using these words right now? It reminds me of like personality tests or any kind of test where there's like a scale of zero to 10 or one to 10, where it's like strongly disagree and strongly agree. And I'm like, I'm one or the other. I'm never in the middle. There's never a middle. Why do you even have a middle? What's the point of that? Who is sitting right there? Does everyone have the strong one way or the other feeling? (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's also kind of why I think we spend a lot of time questioning, like, how much am I struggling right now? I think that's something that's common with a lot of us, which is like having a really hard time feeling like, you know, like if a doctor says like, how much pain are you in on the pain scale, right? Where you're like, I don't know, like <laughs> always there some, so <laughs> it could be worse. So like, I, you know, I'm always have a tendency to be like, I don't know, a two. And then they're like, well, why did you come in today? If, you, right. if your pain's at a two and I'm like, oh, okay, fine, maybe three, like, <laughs> <laughs> but having, you know, feeling so disconnected from our own sense of pain and struggle and you know that idea that like we can't really trust how we interpret our own emotions because maybe it's because we sort of have that tendency to to live in the extreme I don't know I'm just thinking off the fly well even you saying that my brain just had a flash over what we just talked about of we struggle so much and things can be really difficult for us all the time that maybe we get so used to that that we don't stop to realize this is too much. We pass the threshold of acceptable like struggle or pain so that we can slow down and prevent that burnout. We don't have a good radar because things are just hard. So more hard, you know, just doesn't really resonate um, that we should take care of ourselves or pause or step back because I don't know, it was always hard. So how do I know this is too much or that I should stop or take a break, you know? Mm-hmm. No, that kind of hit me then. Right. Yeah. Cause I, I definitely talk a lot about that idea that we, you know, we have to be at our wits end before we welcome help. Right. And like, where's that coming from? Is that just how we were raised in our Protestant work ethic that like self-reliance is, is a virtue. So we, as women, like we have to always have, we need to seek permission to ask for help. And usually that permission is like, I can't function or, you know, but even just the littlest things, like it drives me crazy when when I have a client who's talking about like getting a housekeeper and they're like, you know, I got a housekeeper and we had all this back and forth. And, but I felt like I really needed it because I have a dog and a cat and I have, and I was like, you don't have to justify any of that. (laughs) It's okay to just get help. (laughs) Right. But all the ways in which we have to kind of explain how we got to this point of asking for help in a way that feels like we we finally have permission. And I'm like, you don't need permission to have help. Right. And I agree. I don't know. I, you know, teasing that out, I've gotten a lot of messages of like ADHD versus trauma or their combination or are you someone who covers up your stuff with white lies? That's only because your parents weren't supportive. But I see across the board that some of us come from very supportive families but still have a hard time asking for help and still acknowledging that we need something without being absolutely burnt out and not functioning. So I've got to assume it's connected to the actual diagnosis and not always the environment because it's just such a common thing that we see whether you know your background is traumatic and hard or not mm-hmm. yeah you know I think about that a lot when it comes to my kids and like pushing them to do things right because I felt like my parents didn't push me enough that they were very much sort of like 
oh, you're just the kid who does poorly in school, right? You know, my story was always like, you have the highest IQ of all of our kids because we all had to get tested to be in the gifted program. So I don't know what it was, but like they had it on file somewhere. So my story to them was like, isn't it funny that you have the highest IQ of all three of our kids, but you do terribly in school. Right. (laughs) And that, and they would be like, but that's okay. You don't have to do well in school. You've got street smarts and you're, you're all, you're good at other things. Like we don't care if you're good at school. But like now as an adult, I realized how damaging that was <laughs> just in terms of like, I kind of needed, I mean, obviously I needed help um, in terms of like wanting to, like I wanted so badly to succeed. And, and so I see that in my own kids where I'm sort of like, I want them to do well because I know how good they will feel about themselves if they are pushed to do well. And I used to coach uh, Girls on the Run, which is this running program for, I don't know if you've heard of it. But the whole concept of girls in the run is like, we don't care how you finish the five. So basically you train for a 5k. Many of these girls, they're young, they're in grades three through six. So it's like, they've never done anything close to a 5k. They're terrified. And we go through this program where we talk about social and emotional development, but we also just like practice and and eventually they get past the finish line. And the emphasis is never on how fast you go. We're like, you can walk, you can run. We don't care. But we, you have to cross the finish line because what we, that feeling of completion is so wonderful that I, you know, we want you to have that. And, and so on the one hand, I know that like being pushed to do things can be really rewarding. But on the other hand, through this lens of ADHD, I also know that like consistency is overrated. And then there's like, I don't know if I'm just like driving a wedge between my kids if I'm pushing them in a way that they don't want to be pushed, right? Like I've, I don't know, I find, I get very confused by, I mean, obviously, because I'm a parent, uh, I get confused by everything um, in terms of like, am I screwing them up? How much of this is, is like <laughs> lasting damage? But I'm like, I feel like I, I often get confused over like, what is the best way to encourage and push my children versus like just letting them be. kind of be right and 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 not finish things because right. who cares uh, and at the end of the day I don't care if they get all A's but I know how they'll feel if they get them right right oh gosh I resonate with all that and it's good to hear you talk about like the approach that your parents had probably very intentionally trying to make you feel okay about the way you were functioning but looking back you're like oh I, can't, I needed the push and that probably would have been my approach too with my son like once he gets into school you know, we're okay with your C student or your A student or whatever. But now my brain just twitched and goes, well, maybe that's not the approach I need to take. I don't know. Yeah, because the balance is hard. Like, okay, so do we raise a kid who finishes baseball because they signed up and we're not quitters, we're going to finish it? Or do I recognize your ADHD means that your dopamine dropped off three months ago and this is absolutely miserable for you and it's okay to stop and have just start the journey of your probably 1500 hobbies that you're going to do over your life. Like without shame. Yeah. Right. I know. Um, I had an experience with my 15 year old because she, you know, she's in ninth grade. She just started high school. She's one of those kids who always did really, really well and was always able to kind of keep her own structure and, but yeah, I mean, she just did her homework on her lunch break and in the bus. Like she's not like she ever did homework. Um, and so now she's in high school and she's, she's falling behind, you know, in some of the classes that have a lot more requirements and, 
And so I had that instance where I was like, all right, well, this is what I needed from my parents was like more intervention. So I'm going to be on top of it. I'm going to be talking to her every night. We're going to go over her homework. We're going to, it's going to be structure out the wazoo. And then she started lying to me for the first time ever, where I was like, do you have homework? And she was like, no, I'm good. Or she lied and said, I did it already. And she hadn't. And then she got busted because I was like, let me, I was like, this doesn't sound right. Let me see it. And she got busted. And then I was like, well, this isn't what I want. Right. I did put pressure where you have to lie about stuff. That's now. what I did with my parents. They asked me if I had homework and I said, yeah, I did it. And I was totally lying. So I saw, suddenly I was sort of like, okay, well that backfired. And I sat down with her and was like, what do you need? Like, what can, what do we, how are we going to succeed? And, you know, cause I'm like, I don't want to get in a situation where you're just going to lie to me to, to, because you're not doing what you sort of feel like you should be doing. Like, but at the same time, like, what's the best way to help you? And she's 15. So she was like, I don't know. <laughs> are you supposed to know that? Who put me in charge? Uh, but we both kind of had that feeling of like, we don't know what the best thing to do right now is, but we're going to work on it together. And that's where I sort of felt like, okay, this was like a parenting whim. Anytime I'm just like super honest and vulnerable with my kids is when I feel like it's a parenting whim. And collaborating, including them in it, not just, well, initially going in with like, you know, thinking we got all the answers and then sitting down and going, okay, that didn't work. Either what do you need or like for you, what is success? You know, for me, I'm assuming you feel successful if you get an A in this class. Is that you're thinking behind success or is it something else? I know, right? Ugh, kids. Oh, I know. When I was diagnosed with ADHD, it completely turned my world upside down. I looked back at so much of my life, my grades in school, my multiple careers and hobbies, my friendships, my marriage, motherhood, my relationship with food and my body, like all of this with a new lens. And it was overwhelming to say the least. If you've been diagnosed with ADHD and you're feeling blown away by this new insight into your brain and how it operates, I totally understand. I can help you begin to sort through this chaos, explore who you are and how your brain operates, so you can finally start to lean into your strengths and begin to use them to your advantage moving forward. Together, we can work to identify what obstacles you've been facing and create strategies to help you start living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. Head over to womeninadhd.com coaching to book a 30-minute initial consult with me so we can figure out if my brand of one-on-one coaching is right for you. Again, that's womenandadhd.com slash coaching, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex. 
and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyperfocus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. I want to backtrack a little bit to back to talking about feelings, because I know you have a new course that uh, you're offering about ADHD feelings, and I want to find out what's involved in that. But you had a really interesting reel, too. First of all, I love your reels. I know I've said this before, but like every time you, you, make, you have such great taste in music that like I will listen to your reel and then just go back and be like, I need to add that to my playlist. Like you basically have curated my playlist because I'm like reminded of all these songs that I love and they just hit different when you're playing them. Um, so I just wanted to thank you for that. Just compliment you on your music taste. I've had people be like, we want to hear you talk more. I'm like, yeah, I know, but half of my motivation comes from when I hear a song and then my topic goes with that song and that's what does it. So sorry, guys, it's going to be a lot more of me pointing and smiling with music because that's what my brain does. <laughs> right? And I have that relationship with music too, which is like, I will become obsessed with a song and I'll just play it on, on repeat. And so I'm obsessed with Liability by Lord. Oh my God, it's so good. Like it's, what is that word of just like wanting to kind of get to an emotional play? Even if I'm just kind of like, I'm going along and then I'm like, I want to be really sad right now. So I'm going to listen to this song to experience that sadness. I'm like, what's that about? <laughs> uh, yes, but I'll, I will use that because yes, we've got the big feelings, but we also have this piece of us that can go on autopilot and just grind through our days and our weeks without ever like touching base with the feeling until it you know overwhelms us in a processing moment. And so I've gotten to where now where I can feel this restlessness or physical sensation that I can't put a name to. I usually go, it's time for me to listen to one of these songs and see if it puts me in that spot. And inevitably, it'll put me into this tearful moment and I'll start having clarity of my feelings. It's like, okay, I need to remember to use that as my emotion regulation technique. Like, right? I'll put myself there and actually feel the feeling that I probably stunned or ignored or just busy myself over. Yeah, it is. It is so powerful. I love thinking about music. And, and that was the other thing that's different. You know, sometimes I will hear a song 
like 20 times, but I haven't listened to the lyrics. I, I really like, um, I really like just the, the music. Right. And, and so, and it was actually, that was an example that song liability, my 10 year old son was taught, started singing the music and he was like, I love what this song is about. And I was like, huh, I've never listened to the lyric. And so then I had to listen to the lyrics and was like, Oh, yes. and I think, you know, I think it comes from like having a childhood where you would buy the tape or the CD and you would pull out the liner notes and you would like go through the whole thing and read all the lyrics and just be like, like this otherworldly experience. <laughs> and, and like, we don't get that anymore now. No, um, no. I'm just mumbling along to what I think is a, is a lyric, <laughs> but just like, like really buy them off of the actual music piece until I learn the words later. Right. I know. Yeah. I've always, my daughter always, she's the same way. It was like, she'll listen to the music and she has to like be really intentional to listen to the lyrics. Whereas my husband, he like immediately knows what the song is about and he'll listen to the lyrics right away the first time he hears a song. And I'm like, is that a neurodivergent thing? Like just having to like listen in one way or listen in another way like you have to like choose before the song starts how you're going to listen to it yeah <laughs> um, but I so you had a reel recently about uh, the difference between masking and emotional regulation which I found really interesting but I'm still confused by like I was like oh that makes total sense and then I come away from it and I'm like I would not be able to describe what the difference is so can you go over that for me again for the kids in the back of the room yeah and my brain immediately goes, I need to pull that up and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I can remember what triggered, well, I can almost remember. I did some real beforehand, and people were like, you're talking about masking, you're talking about, oh, I think I talked about the intensity of emotions. And they were like, well, that's okay. You shouldn't have to stop the intensity. You're talking about masking. And it's like, what? Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about masking. It's okay that we have big emotions, but we also are responsible for being aware of the situation we're in and recognizing not just that our intensity is matching the event, but like what consequences are going to come either in my relationships or my work or what I'm doing if I'm reacting off of my initial 100 intensity that we always get to. So even with people that I I work with, you know, like you can be ecstatic. I don't care if your intensity of joy and happiness is at 100 all the time because that's likely not causing a lot of harm. But, you know, we, we still have a need to just be mindful of if I react to the intensity of 100 over traffic because me and road rage are really good friends, that's not really good for me to like blow my horn at people and be flipping them off and like riding their tail because they can go fast enough on green. Now, me telling you to manage that or me telling myself to manage that 100 reaction and not react at 100 is not masking. It's emotion regulation. Okay. Traffic is not something I should be responding to at 100% intensity. Maybe I should do some things to help bring myself down so I'm not road raging everywhere. That makes sense. I don't know. That was a very roundabout way. No, that's a great example. Yeah, because I feel like it's like know your triggers, right? I've been fascinated. I've been thinking a lot about kind of the way in which we're all diagnosed with depression and kind of how we get to that diagnosis. Because for me, you know, I feel like a lot of my depression came from feeling like I was hurting the people around me either through my emotional dysregulation or, you know, feeling like I was making poor decisions or just like, I was just like a trash human in relation to other people. And so, and, and feeling like I was broken and also feeling like I can't control 
a lot of my behaviors and, and specifically around like my kids and rage, right? Like that was because I had, you know, a lot of emotional dysregulation when I had a baby and, and that kind of, um, hurt, you know, my husband, because I'm like, he's helping, he's doing all these wonderful things. And I'm just yelling at everybody. What's wrong with me? I should go on antidepressants. Right. And so it's now I'm looking at it through this new lens of like having sensory issues and sleep deprivation and all the other kind of things that I never thought about, uh, when I was postpartum. And now it's like, I realize it's much easier for me to, to know what my triggers are. So I don't get to that rage point. Right. So I'm like, Oh, the reason why I was feeling out of control in my rage was because I wasn't paying attention to the fact that the TV was on and this was happening. And I was trying to make a recipe and do all these things. And like, that's why I was being thrown into a rage. So it, it, you know, I often talk about like having the notes in the margin, right. Where I'm like, I just knowing the why behind a lot of our behaviors helps us, to kind of not get to the boiling point a lot of the time, because we can kind of see where it's like, I know where this is headed. I know how this ends. How can I pivot? How can I pull back? Right. I think the answer is almost always, how do I pull back in, in everything in my life? Right. Always. How do I pull back? How do I pause? That's a hard shift if that's not the, most of the time, that's not the momentum your life has. Right. 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 Also, um, it was reminding me of that, uh, again, that like failure to pause that like leads you to buy the house and do all these things. And I'm like, so there's like a positive side to all of that. But I think also like going back to this idea of, of depression diagnoses, right? Because I feel like depression, I'm curious what your point of view is on like depression for me feels like a lack of desire, like you've given up, right? That there's a sense of, of inevitability or something like you've, you've just given up. And I think for a lot of us, the lack of desire, it's, we have the opposite issue. We have so much desire. We want to do all the things we want to keep going at hundred percent, you know, as energizer bunny, we have all these ideas of businesses and stuff that we want to do. And we just can't do those things because, you know, we don't know how, or we, you know, we've got the executive dysfunction. We can't bring ourselves. I mean, all the reasons why we are overwhelmed by our own ambitions and our own desires, which feels often to me, the opposite of depression. <laughs> um, yes, I agree. I mean, the amount of ideas that I've had for humanity high in the last minutes, we're just not getting honest in your market it being up. It's just ridiculous. The amount of things I've talked about or thought about doing, and had barely scratched the surface on one because even just the first step of figuring out how to set up the website for it or the basics of Calendly, good board, all those kind of things can get in the way and then trigger that RSD of maybe I'm not capable. Maybe this, I'm not the person to do this. This isn't the path I should take. Um, it shouldn't be this hard, so forth and so on. But the pause can really help for so many things. I mean, it can help us realize what we would have acted on impulsively that maybe wasn't really true to our values it was coming from an outside expectation or an outside um, energy that wasn't really ours just gives you a second for your nervous system sometimes to calm down so that you don't cut somebody out when they say something that's upsetting you can 
actually have a response that's helpful and productive. Yeah, that pause is powerful, but it is hard to wrangle in sometimes. Yeah. I like the idea of how has my language changed, you know, with the idea of like, uh, am I using terms like always or <laughs> like, what are some other ways that you can kind of train yourself to know when it's time to pull back besides like exhaustion and burnout? For me, if I'm going into like defensive or fight mode, and for me, you know, the common word would probably be mama bear because I, I would probably most commonly go there with my son. But if I can go, my initial reaction is like to justify more than I should or be defensive or something like that. That's my sign to like to get back Your defensiveness or your um, desire to go on the attack and a response is usually because you feel insecure or anxiety or fear about something. So you need to just give it a minute. And usually when I do, my response is, much less intense. I go from 80 to, I mean, 100 to 20. And once I get down to that 20 level of intensity, that still feels true to me. That still feels authentic, but it's articulated in a way that I would actually want to communicate versus just being like, ah. Mm, yeah. I feel that way sometimes about the, the emotion of frustration, right? Because I'm sort of like, when you're frustrated, when I'm frustrated, I have to stop and be like, is this something I even want? Because, yes. right? Because we're so interested driven that often I think we we get these ideas in our head like we should be the kind of person who does x right and because we can't we get really frustrated with ourselves and so I'm like even just the emotion of frustration is a time for me to be like stop and be like is this something I really like authentically need to do and want to do or is this have I just gotten wrapped up with the idea that like I want to create you know this wonderful conferences or, you know, how, or all the things that I want to do with my business where I'm like, okay, like, let's just take a step back. Right. Is that because I want to do those things or is somewhere in my brain telling me my business isn't successful unless I do that thing or... Oh yeah. Don't even get me started on growth. Right. Cause I'm like, or just the idea that like consistency is akin to failure in my mind. Right. Like I think about that with like my podcast downloads each week. I'm like, if I, if they have to rise, if they don't rise, if they stay stagnant, that is basically failure to me. And that's failure. Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. And let me tell you the day I actually was on my page and saw my follower account drop in front of my eyes. I was like, oh gosh, we didn't just maintain, we dropped. But yeah, if it's not growth, if it's not constantly growing, yeah, that's failure in my brain. I know, right? And then I'm like, I wonder why I'm so burnt out all the time. Right. Jeez, I wonder where this comes from. This desire to always be going. Right. I had to like really emotionally distance myself from follower count because it was, yeah, it was getting to that point where I was thinking about like the next, the next, you know, uh, goalpost and, and getting so excited. And I don't mean to sound like an asshole, but like, you know, people are always thanking the follower count when they get to a certain milestone. They're like, thank you so much. And I had to just, I had to distance myself from that meaning anything to me because I really had to be like, if I make it all about that, then I'm going to get really frustrated and burnt out and all of these other negative emotions. So I had to distance myself from it. And then there was a part of me that's like, am I ungrateful because I'm not thanking people every time I get to a next milestone? And I was like, I can't even deal with that question. Because for me, like, I know that if I pay attention to that, I'm going, it's going to be bad. <laughs> yeah. And I, I can notice my anxiety and my RSD worse if I'm paying attention to those markers instead of just, am I putting something out there that's helpful or 
Period. I'm putting something out there that's helpful versus to me. Right? <laughs> yeah, and usually it's for me. Half the time, y'all, when I'm putting it out there, like y'all are getting peak into what you're struggling with. So yeah, it's the value that shifts if I pay attention to that too much, and that's where we get to that burnout stuff really easily. I know, right? Yeah, I think at this point, I basically like, does this make me laugh? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right? And even if nobody else is laughing, I'm laughing. And that's right. Really I think it's hilarious. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So, so the ADHD feelings course, there's that one. And then there's another one, right? You have the diagnosis or the overview, right? That one is the overview. And uh, they were probably a very healing focused thing. So I put it off pretty quickly after my mom died. But yeah, so they're, they're very casual in nature. It would look like you're kind of sitting with me if you were in my office as a client. Um, and in the feelings course, I really like because it's, it's really narrowed down interventions that, that I believe in because either I use them myself or when I have introduced them to clients, these are the ones that the, most of the people are responding to like, oh, no, that made a difference. That really helped with that thought I couldn't stop ruminating on, that feeling understanding. Um, so that one is really just several very brief interventions kind of compiled together, um, especially for those people that I keep seeing that they can't get into a therapist, or they can't access help, or they can't, you know, what do I do in the meantime? So, well, here's like, here's like six or seven things that have been helpful for me and other people. Maybe they can help bridge that kind of gap for, for those that are waiting to get regular help. And that overview is is not a complicated one. It's one that, you know, those of us that are in this ADHD world, we're seeing it a lot, you know, interest-based nervous system, hyper-arousal of feeling and thoughts, and then projection sensitivity. But I realized I was never taught those, and most of the people that are on my page or even coming to see me in person, if they were even diagnosed years ago, they were never educated on that either. Um, so it was like, well, let me put this all in one spot, because y'all tell me that y'all don't want to read the articles, it's too much to go search for your own. And I get all that. So here's a video of me talking about it. <laughs> so, yeah. I've interviewed a few women at this point who are kind of involved with or even have founded these like ADHD centers. Yeah. Which I really love the concept of, right? It's almost like this like one-stop shop where you can go and like you can you can get your diagnosis, you can have speech pathologists and therapists and sort of all working together which I love because it's, I mean, that's one of the things I think so many of us experience, which is just the overwhelm of like, who do I talk to? Who diagnoses? Like, where do I even start? Like, I hope that becomes more popular. You know, understanding grows in terms of like all the different tools in your toolbox that you can kind of bring in, but how much we need our hands held, right? Yes. Yes. And how I can simultaneously get frustrated by it, even though I am one of those people who needs my hand held. Gosh, I mean, those centers are amazing. And I realize more and more as followers reach out how many in Europe and in other countries, they're on waiting lists for years. And my brain can't even like, I mean, for me here, months is a long time. And some places are, are maybe a year, but people are like, yeah, I mean, I'm on the wait list to get assessed, but that's three years from now. What am I supposed to do? And it kind of eye opens for me, you know, at least that's something, I guess, in the U.S., we are aware of the ADHD in some worlds, in some countries, think we, you know, overdiagnosis, but just the lack of resources in so many other places in the world. I know, right? And, and it's, I often grapple with that, too, because I'm sort of like, 
a self-diagnosis is so important, right? So even if you're awaiting this, this a diagnosis, like there's so much work you can do in terms of your own treatment plan that doesn't involve a formal diagnosis, doesn't even involve medication. You know, and I don't think we should put the emphasis on and pathologize ADHD in that way. But I also think that like it's really validating. <laughs> to get that right. Like, and I often will say like, I wish I had like a triple A card or something that reminds me that somebody else diagnosed me because even though this is my entire life and I talk about it all the time and I have a podcast, like there's still that voice. that's like, yeah, yeah, you're just making it up. You're really, you're, you're just, just lazy. lazy. Right? <laughs> and so, yeah, to imagine having to wait on a year's long waiting list and, and, to feel like you can't get started until you've got that one ingredient and you know right yeah imagine experiencing that and then living in the now right or somebody giving you a manual but being like chapter three got ripped out and right you can't be like well i can't read anything else until i have the whole exhausted textbook yes absolutely uh, so now, are you still working with other therapists? Because the last time we spoke, you were kind of helping and training and and doing courses. Are you have you're still doing that? I am, but much more stepped back. <laughs> One of the eighteen thousand things you're working on right now. Yeah, I've stepped back definitely from after my mom killed herself. It um, I found out in my office at work. Um, I got the phone call right after doing a therapy session. So. I've realized that the building triggers me a whole lot. And so even being there, it immediately brings back that whole process. So definitely working through caring for myself and recognizing I had to hand off a lot of clients because I'm not in the position to walk a trauma journey with you right now while I'm sitting in my own. And so I'm, I'm still doing a, a little bit of the diagnosing and assessment. I've got a very, very small case of the people that I see, but I think that continues to kind of shift down as I look more into just doing a supervision type thing with, with other therapists and trainings and really putting effort into to community hiding and just kind of seeing where it goes, but recognizing my desire to stay as busy and in that therapist chair is not where I need to be for a little while because grief is just Yeah. I hear you. (laughs) I really appreciate your living out loud in this way and kind of living in the moment and being vulnerable. I know it's helping so many people and, you know, even though that kind of is like an added bonus, right? Yeah. It helps me too. (laughs) I think if our motivation was to help people, I'd probably like be so mired in anxiety and worry if I was like serving them properly that I would, I would step over myself. Like I feel like It has to be this other way of like, what's most interesting to me right now? Right. So I do really appreciate what you're doing and I just adore your content and secretly thrilled that I got another chance to sit down with you. Yeah, I always do. I know. I'm going to go back to the report. We'll do it again. So it's fine. Or if it does, we'll come back and talk about it. Try to just make it a weekly thing. Right. Yeah, I'm totally down with that. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this 
gift of neurodivergency, and they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. <music>